So we're in Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, picking up in verse 12 through most of verse 18. Hear God's word. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. The Word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we do come before and under this Word this morning, pray that You would open our eyes and our hearts. Father, without Your work in our lives, understanding this Word, grasping it, having it reach to our hearts is impossible. So, by Your Spirit, work in us. Grow us in Your grace this morning. We pray for Your glory and for our good and joy. Amen. Before I start, Josh, can you close those doors? Because when it's sunny, it's really bad up here, and I can't. You guys are all like spots at the moment, so. All right. What do you most value in life? What are your priorities? You know, I think we, we consider this, uh, at least in the public sphere, a bit more directly, don't we? Every, every couple of years, uh, as the news cycle follows the political cycle, you have presidential and congressional, state and local elections that come to the fore, and candidates want to speak to what is most valued in the electorate, at least so they can get elected. Now, here's a slide that shows uh, that you really can't read it, but that's okay. But it shows uh, the results of a Pew Research poll from January 2021, and this is the overall, and they go on and they break down the results even farther uh, by demographic and party affiliation and et cetera, and there's some, some variations, but this really tells you what people in our country consider as um, the, the, the top 10, the top 15 things that concern them. And the highest of priority here is the economy, then the pandemic, dealing with the pandemic, then jobs, and then move on down to protecting the, the nation from terrorism and fixing politics, which is probably not what a politician is going to do, healthcare, and as you can see, it moved from there, and, and, and very little of it's surprising. However, though they polled over 5,000 people, I'm positive they didn't poll the Apostle Paul. For one, he's dead. Two, the top answer would not have been the economy. It would not have uh, been defending the Roman Empire against the barbarian horde or improving the criminal justice system. Top on his list would be the clear proclamation of Christ. It would be the spread of the gospel for the glory of God. You see, Paul had a different outlook on life, an outlook rooted in the sovereignty of God, and that outlook reframed everything about the way he viewed life, 
and circumstances. It reframed the entire world in his eyes. His priority was the gospel. And this morning, we're going to see this come out in these seven verses. We're going to see Paul's outlook, what mattered to him. We'll see it in his chains. We'll see it in the confidence of others and in his view of Christ. And as we do, this is, I believe it's going to challenge our views on what is most important. And prayerfully, it will work to start reframing our lives around what is of first importance. Now, earlier in Paul's greeting in verse 7, he mentioned his imprisonment, literally his chains. Now, it's only natural as he, gives, as he writes this letter to a church that he dearly loves, that dearly loves him, and that's concerned about his welfare, that he would write as to the reality of his chains. What, what's been going on? How is he doing? What are his prospects of release? But instead of that, Instead of giving them a a laundry list of what's going on and the inconveniences and what he needs from them and all this other stuff and the difficulties that come with being chained to a guard 24-7, he states something quite different, doesn't he? I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. See, what he desires for them to know and for them to, to grasp, to understand, is how he views what has actually been going on with him. I don't think this is the natural report any of us would have expected. We would not figure in our normal line of thinking that he would give this, that he would say that his chains, his circumstances of being imprisoned, are good for the gospel. This is Paul. He's, he's you know, powerful in, in word and, and, and demonstrates the spirit of power, and he's saying it's good that I'm chained to a, a guard. But this is not only what he thought. He's not just trying to make the Philippians feel better here. It's what he knew to the deepest fiber of his being, and it's how he lived. Now, there's nothing in his words here that tell us of what it was like to be in chains, and not that he was some Pollyanna, just overly cheerful all the time, or ignorant of what was happening. We know he suffered. We're sure it was not pleasant, but his outlook was remarkable. He doesn't focus here on the hardship, the pain, the struggle. Rather, he highlights and gives reassurance to the believers that his circumstances, what had been appointed for him by God, was for the advancement of the gospel. They're for the further and continued progress of God's Word. And that desire, that goal, that priority for Paul, it overrode. It was the, the highest thing, so it overrode any hardships or sufferings he was experiencing. But I think we have a question with this. How does Paul know, because he's chained to a guard, how does he know that his circumstances worked out in such a manner? Look at verse 13. He says, So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. He's seen the results of the advance of the gospel among the very men charged to guard him. Now, typically, these guards would have seen and and viewed a prisoner and and regarded them as lawbreakers, as rebels against the state. That's why they're there. That's why they're guarding them. But there was something different with Paul. His chains were not because he was some mastermind of criminal activity. His chains were actually seen and viewed by others as being due to his commitment to Christ, to his union with Christ, because he lived for the cause of Christ. 
He was imprisoned because his life was dedicated to the proclamation of grace, of Christ and him crucified and risen and reigning as Lord. Now, certainly, that whole message was subversive to Caesar. But Paul's desire was not to bring about a coup, but for Caesar and all the people to know the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And so, what's amazing is that Paul's chains, rather than actually demonstrating the authority of Caesar, they end up demonstrating the authority and lordship of Christ. They were evidence of Christ's power in Paul's life, not of the states, because Paul continued to proclaim the gospel even in chains. Now, this text doesn't explicitly tell us that the whole guard, now this whole imperial guard at that time would have been around 9,000 guards. The whole imperial guard knew, it doesn't say that they all came to Christ, but they knew of his um, of his circumstances. They knew that his imprisonment was of a different character. But when it says all the rest, we do know that some for sure came to know Christ because at the end of this letter, doesn't he give greetings from all the saints in Caesar's household? Paul's imprisonment advanced, advanced the message of the gospel. So, what we have in these first two verses is Paul helping us see his outlook, his outlook that helped him to reframe his experience. It, it would be easy to view imprisonment as failure and simply mope about the day and distress and to complain about it being an utter injustice and, you know, I demand this and that. But Paul didn't view it that way because his priority was not his convenience and his freedom, but the gospel's advance. Yet, I think there's more to this text that helps us see the sovereign outlook. Look at verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Here's the second reason Paul saw his circumstances as not primarily as a hardship but actually for good, for the good, for the advancement of the gospel. He writes, for because of it, most, not a few, not all, but most of the brothers have been affected by it. They have grown in confidence. Calvin wrote beautifully on this. He said, by this instance, we are taught that the tortures of the saints endured by them in behalf of the gospel are a ground of confidence to us. It were indeed a dreadful spectacle, and such as might tend rather to dishearten us, did we see nothing but the cruelty and rage of the persecutors. When, however, we see at the same time the hand of the Lord, which makes His people unconquerable under the infirmity of the cross and causes them to triumph, relying upon this, we ought to venture farther than we had been accustomed having now a pledge of our victory in the persons of our brethren. The knowledge of this ought to overcome our fears that we may speak boldly in the midst of dangers. Now, it seems counterintuitive. They lock up my friend, and I'm more bold. That, that doesn't seem to be the way, you know, in, in a lot of our lives, they lock somebody up, we shut up. 
But this is the way it's been throughout the church. The soil of the church, the, the movement of the church has been fed by the blood of martyrs. The persecution and imprisonment of believers, it doesn't quell the love of the Lord in believers. It actually fans it into flame. The opposite of the effect intended by the persecutors takes place. The irony of Paul's chains is that though they bound him, they actually worked to free others to speak the Word of God in more freedom, more daring, more bold. I've got a set of videos at home that, that I love to watch every now and then called Dispatches from the Front. Uh, they're stories of the gospel's advance throughout the world, modern world, um, and one of them is titled No Regrets, No Retreat, and it looks at the gospel's advance in China. Now, the modern Chinese church was, was birthed in suffering. Uh, it's multiplied in persecution, and the narrator of it that, that travels the world is a man named Tim Kesey. And at one point in a, a video, is he, he's traveling with an American who's been in China for many years, knows the language well, and also with a young Chinese woman named Mei Li. And they're traveling, they're, they're sitting on a, uh, a high-speed train, and they're visiting some various places, and, and, and they're seeking to learn more about each other. And Tim finds out more about Mei Li's backstory, about her hard childhood and the difficulty of it and, and all different things, that it was a rough life for her. And then he asks her to do something for him, and, and I want us to watch a little bit of this. I asked Mei Li to write in my journal the Chinese character for bravery. I expected a single character, a few ink strokes of Mandarin, Instead, what she did revealed so much about her heart. She penned three of her favorite quotations. If I had a thousand lives to give, I would give them all for China. No, for Christ. Hudson Taylor. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Jim Elliot. And one by William Borden, who turned his back on fame and fortune to take the gospel to China, but died before he reached these shores. He had written in his Bible, no reserves, no retreat, no regrets. I'd ask her to write the character for bravery. Instead, she wrote of brave character. With tears in her eyes, Mei said that these gospel trailblazers modeled Christ-like courage for her and other Chinese believers. The fearful little girl who put on her game face and met trouble head on hasn't changed that much. Only now, she isn't taking the lead. Christ is. And she's just following Him. No regrets. No retreat. She's not taking the lead anymore. Christ is. And what worked for that? The lives of other believers giving everything for the gospel. 
familiar with Jim Elliott's quote. Men killed by the Aka Indians, and yet their families were the ones that went back and saw the Akas come to Christ. Christ takes the lead, and there's no regrets, there's no retreat. I also ask Ryan Zhang, who's one of the pastors at New City. He's involved with a, an organization called China Partnership. And just to hear different ways, because there's still persecution going on in China today. And he sent me multiple articles, and here's one that he said, uh, that he sent just a little clip. It said, only last night I received a message from a church who has had one of their preachers detained since last Sunday. He was released yesterday. On Friday, I received a photo of this church group welcoming their pastor out of jail. These church members waited for him outside the city's detention center. When he came out, they went up to him, gave him flowers, and took a group photo. Although this was the pastor's first time in jail, this is not the first time this has happened to this church. Although it is a cruel reality in China, we joke about it. The pastor is given five days in jail, then he has Saturday to prepare for the next Sunday's sermon. Maybe next time he will take a commentary book with him so he has more time to prepare for that weekend sermon. And then they end with this line, suffering is a part of our kingdom identity. It is how the kingdom advances, yet we do not seek suffering, we seek Christ. The courage of believers rises to new heights as they witness others live for Christ. One man in chains, Paul, served to transform the church. Believers then spoke without fear. They, they dared to be bold in speaking the word of Christ, and that actually takes courage. It doesn't always take courage to speak up in public, does it? We can say a whole lot of things in public without risk. One commentator wrote, he said, but speaking this particular word a Christ-centered word always requires courage. The message of Christ's humble obedience unto death on a cross strikes a blow at every proud heart. The message of Christ's exaltation to be the universal Lord over all creation requires every knee to bow before Him. Anyone who dares to speak this word outside the church, outside the comfortable circle of Christian admirers, will be inspired by Paul's courageous witness. Folks, let us be inspired, and let us be those who inspire others by our courageous witness. But you know what? There's a twist to this story, because Paul knew something about some of these who became bold. Look at verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to inflict me in my imprisonment. So there's two groups he singles out here, right? First, there's those who preach Christ from envy and rivalry, out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. And then there's the second group, those who preach Christ from goodwill, out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Now, the first thing that we have to notice is that both of these groups preach Christ. 
Okay? Both groups are preaching Christ. This is essential for Paul. It's the bare minimum. So if one of these groups wasn't actually preaching Christ, he would have called that out. He would have made that very clear and very well known because for Paul, that's of first importance. Read the beginning of Galatians. He's like, if anyone preaches you anything other than the gospel I preach, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. So Paul knows that that's essential, but both of these groups are preaching Christ. The content of the groups was the same, but the motives were drastically different. The first was from envy and rivalry. You know, we know envy, it's evil motives. They they had a desire to damage Paul's reputation. It's, It's not good. It's listed actually as one of the works of the flesh in Galatians 5. Believers are commanded to put away envy in 1 Peter 2. It's characteristic of those who were once slaves to various passions and pleasures in Titus 3. Needless to say, envy is not a good motive for preaching Christ. But then there's rivalry, strife, and discord. This is the mark of a person who is warped and sinful, according to Titus. Beyond that, they're motivated by selfish ambition which is paired often with jealousy or envy in Scripture. One particular reference is James 3, starting in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. And then let's add on top of that, because Paul did, not sincerely. There are ulterior, there are mixed motives for this group in the proclamation of Christ. Now contrast that with the second group, who preach Christ from good will desiring to bless, who do so out of love. Now, again here, Paul does not make the object of love perfectly clear. However, in the context, it would, of course, include out of love for Paul, but we also know that our preaching of Christ is motivated out of Christ's love for us and our love for Christ and our love for others. But I think in this whole section a more interesting and and, and pointed contrast between these two groups is this. One does all of this thinking to afflict Paul. The other does it knowing that he's in chains for the defense of the gospel. Okay, so the first think, they suppose, they imagine, they they are in, in a sense hopeful that their actions will cause Paul harm in, in some way. Likely, it's, it's just most likely inner distress because they think, they actually think that they're rivals with Paul. Uh, maybe competing for status and acclaim. We, we don't really know. We, we're not clear on who these groups are, but they, they want to annoy him. They want to trouble him in his spirit, show him the limitations of his current condition. So they're supposing They're imagining that what they do is going to hurt Paul. And so the second, though, says, 
knowing. Knowing God, they preach out of love. Doesn't this sound familiar to the prayer we just looked at last week? Right? It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you will prove what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Their knowledge of God leads to an abounding love, and that knowledge also changes how they view Paul's circumstances. Because their priority is is knowing God, and so in knowing God, they understand we have a sovereign God who is at work. They see it from the vantage point of a sovereign God. I think I've I've told this story before, but it fits here. In In the summer of 1998, I led um, a group of college students and others on a summer missions trip in the Middle East. And one day, we planned to pass out about 500 free copies of the New Testament on that college campus, going through the different, um, like, student centers throughout the different areas. So we started to pass them out. Some people did. I was kind of observing. And after the first one, as they handed out, one of the students, as, as one of our as one of our students was walking away, just picks up the New Testament, chucks it back at him, makes a ruckus, and within a few minutes, I see my entire team being paraded across campus by the campus police, which were more like military police because they're they're carrying AK-47s, hiking across (laughs) college students. They come up to me. They grab me. Only one of us actually gets away and goes back and informs the other group to be praying. And so we're, we're taken to the the commandant's office and held and questioned individually into his office. And, you know, when when those of us who were taken back for questioning entered his office, we saw all the New Testaments that we brought in a huge pile on his floor. And it was utterly disheartening, to say the least. Now, to cut to the chase, we were finally released, were able to travel back home, It was a pretty silent trip on the way back home. It was about an hour and a half journey. We regrouped at one of our apartments for pizza and a bit of a debrief. And the faces of these college students, of this team I was in charge of, were pretty solemn and sullen. But then people began to share a little bit more about what they were feeling, about what they had experienced, and we opened up Scripture. And we taught of a sovereign God at work for His glory. And then some of the stories came out that as people went back, they were taken back by different guards. As the guards walked out, they reached down and sneaked a Bible. They wanted to know what it was all about that we would do this. And so instead of being totally forlorn by the end of the night, we were singing praises, going, God, you're at work in a way that we don't understand. And in that, we can absolutely rejoice. You know, Paul here knew that God was working in the midst of preaching Christ. He was able to still have a God-centered view, even knowing that for some of them, there were some pretty shady motives. But Christ was being proclaimed. Sovereign God was at work. And then we look at verse 18. What then? 
What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Wow. I I don't know if it bothered Paul that some of these people were doing this to get under his skin and cause him harm and affliction. I, I can't imagine not at least wrestling with those feelings, but his response is this, what does it matter? What does it matter? They're preaching Christ, and in that, whew, praise God. People are hearing the message of Jesus. It doesn't matter to him that they wish to inflict upon him harm or anything. What matters to him is what they are doing for the gospel. But you might ask here, how can this be something to rejoice in when they're doing it insincerely and with cruddy motives? Well, that's true. But those who heard didn't know the motives. I will tell you, throughout this country every, and this world, every single week, the person that stands up to preach isn't doing it with perfectly pure motives. But the gospel is pure. That's why we don't put our faith in a person who's giving the message. We put a faith in the person whom the message is about. They heard the message of grace and the gospel. God always uses flawed people. It couldn't be done otherwise. So what Paul rejoices in is not their motives, but in the glorious fact that Christ is proclaimed. What we see here is Paul reframing circumstances, submitting his own personal interests, comfort, and more to the wider horizon of the gospel. And the great irony, the beauty of how God works is that clearly those who preach from bad motives, they didn't submit their interests to the gospel. But in actuality, they still served the gospel, and even more, they actually fulfilled Paul's highest interest, which was to preach the gospel. So in their bad motives, they're not inflicting Paul, but they're actually fulfilling his greatest motive is to see the gospel preached. Isn't God amazing how He works through that? And so in that, Paul could rejoice. So folks, may our lives be reframed by the priority of the gospel, by a sovereign outlook in our lives, by knowing Christ who gave Himself for us, who sacrificed everything that we could know love. And let us, let us go forth from goodwill, out of love, proclaiming the gospel to a dying world. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for how You love us and care for us. Thanks how You work in weird and wacky situations that seem like, how could You be glorified in people with bad motives, but yet you work. And so, God, may your gospel go forth. May your name be praised, and may you work in our lives to see the truth and the glory of grace, the glory of Christ more and more, and may it override our self-interest, our selfish ambition, our envy, our rivalry. 
Lord, work in our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.